When I first moved to Austin in the early 2000s, I immediately started hearing people say things that I'd never heard before. So one day at a festival, I tried to buy a bottle of water from a woman at a booth, and she said, I just sold the last one. There's another case in the truck, but it's too heavy for me to lift. So I said, do you need a hand getting it out of the truck? And she said, Mike could. So I said, okay, is Mike coming back soon? And she said, yeah, why? And I said, to get the water bottles out of the truck. And she said, why would Mike get the water bottles out of the truck? And I said, because they're heavy. And she said, yeah, but Mike can't lift those. And I said, but you said Mike could. And she said, no, I didn't. And then someone else walked over and asked that woman if she had any hot dogs left. And she said, Mike could. And then it all became so clear. That was my introduction to the colloquialisms of Austin, Texas. I'm Jason Silverberg, and you are listening to I Love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Ladybird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. Making your own baby food and body lotions might seem like hippie parenting to the extreme, but not for many Austin families. Handmade Mama author Mary Helen Leonard came to the Statesman studio to talk about why so many parents today are taking the DIY path in an effort to create a family culture on their own terms. Austin 360's pop culture critic Joe Gross visits us to talk about his new book from the 33 and a third book series, In on the Kill Taker, which documents the making of and significance of punk band Fugazi's third studio album. Quilting might seem like an art form of the past, but not if you're in Mara Ambrose's studio. The founder of Folk Fibers joined us to talk about why people are drawn to her hand-dyed quilts and hands-on workshops and the art of the modern homestead. We'll end, as always, with our recommendations in a toast. But first, let's hear from Mary Helen Leonard, whose new book offers a non-judgmental glimpse into the world of natural parenting. Thanks for coming to the studio, Mary Helen. Hi, thanks for having me. So what does it look like to be a modern hippie parent, if I can call you that? <laughs> well, I'd say uh, there's a really wide range. There's a lot of options in the crunchy parenting world, and you can kind of like go as crazy with it as you want to. <laughs> um, I'm, I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle. Sometimes I feel like I'm on the lower part of the middle. <laughs> Other times I feel like I'm at the higher part of the middle. It all depends on who you're around, too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, you feel like you're, you've gone off the deep end crunch-wise, and then you meet somebody who's just gone so much further. <laughs> you're like, whoa. <laughs> Austin is a really great place to be a parent who is just conscious about kind of every aspect of parenting. I right. mean, my kids are older now, but I really relished the time of becoming a mother and sort of the, you know, the it's a place to evolve your own identity. And I definitely identified as a crunchy hippie. Yeah. And so then when I was pregnant, I was like going to attachment parenting classes and, you know, just reading everything I could about breastfeeding. And, and then you figure out like how far 
then the baby comes and you're like, okay, well, what is going to work or what is not going right, to work? Because right. you so, don't know who's coming. That's what I say a lot. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> what they're going to need. Yeah. And yeah. how they're going to react to different methods that you try. Sure. And you know, who the, you are going to become. Mm-hmm, definitely. And what can you handle? Yeah. And what can you emotionally handle, physically handle, financially handle? Yeah. It all can look very different from what you imagined before so the baby comes. You have a f- <laughs> almost four-year-old mm-hmm. and one on the way. Yes. She's due... Sometime between the next two and four weeks, so, which is a great time, to, great time to publish a book. If <laughs> yeah, you ask me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, the Handmade Mama is your second book. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the title of the first one? The Natural Beauty Solution. So, Mary Helen and I first met, and uh, she was blogging mostly about food, but mm-hmm. you know, also some of this other stuff. And then uh, you started to get into natural, you know, skincare and beauty products. And then now with this new book, you've got crafts and you've got um, recipes, food recipes for both mama and baby, but a lot of cool ideas for. Uh, things that you can make for yourself or right. things that you can make for other people who are in this important time in their, in their life. So if, do you want to kind of walk me through some of the, your favorite things that you've sure. got in the book? So one thing I'm really, um, I was really happy to do is the first whole first chapter is about supporting mama. Mm-hmm. So that's about supporting mom during pregnancy and postpartum because a lot of these books that come out um, are all about the baby and the cute stuff and da-da-da. But, you know, being giving birth is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Or, or having a baby any other mm-hmm. way is a big Just deal. being pregnant is, <laughs> yeah. is a big the shift. The whole journey yeah. is, is intense. So um, the first whole first um, thing has, you know, it's got um, yoga poses and... <laughs> like sleep, also like sleep masks and... Sleep masks, and like, yeah. And the projects are like, um, like I do a head-to-toe mama wash, which is a really simple, non-irritating, because your skin can go crazy when you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. And on top of everything else that's making you uncomfortable, you don't want to be itchy. So... <laughs> And I know a lot of women are itchy. Oh, man. You got a homemade uh, belly rub <laughs> yes. that we just tried. So Mary mm-hmm. Helen was on my live stream just now, and we got to try this <laughs> shea butter rub that my hands are still so soft. Mm. It was lovely. But you explained, like, shea butter... It's it's a small improvement over what you might commercially find. I mean, right. basically, life is a series of small choices. And, mm-hmm. like, you get to decide if you want to, you know, maybe incorporate a more natural belly rub for right. yourself. And now, now you've got options. And it's just like food where it's, it's more nutrient-dense. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you're going to put something on your body every day, mm-hmm. um, not only do you know what's in it, which is great, but everything that's in there is doing something for you. There's no fillers. There's no junk. So <clears throat> it's just completely supporting you. Well, we've spent so much time thinking about our diet and, you know, how much water we're drinking, but Mm -hmm. your skin is an organ. Yes. And what you put on it, your body absorbs 100%. And if you think about from makeup to hair care to even fingernail polish, Mm -hmm. we subject our bodies to a lot. Yeah. And a lot of the, um, a big concern right now um, for the crunchy community Mm -hmm. is endocrine disruptors. Oh, I don't know about this. Oh, it's a whole thing. So you can... You can get into it and really rabbit hole. freak yourself out. But, um, but you know, the big thing is that's why a lot of people are trying to avoid synthetic fragrances, yeah. synthetic um, preservatives, stuff like that. So when you're mm-hmm. pregnant, um, things that are disrupting your, your hormone system, that's a big deal. Yeah. So the recipes in this book are, are meant to simplify that a little bit for you. Like, okay, here's how you can – here's a body wash that still bubbles and lathers but doesn't have that stuff in it. Sure. And it's going to cost you like a dollar to make it. So that's that's a good alternative. (laughs) I mean, that's what compelled me to do a lot of my hippie granola stuff early on and today Mm -hmm. is that it's just less expensive. I mean, yeah, all of it. Well, and all that, you know, I'm a big believer in natural living and all that. That whole culture should Mm -hmm. not just belong to rich people who Mm -hmm. can afford to pay someone else to make it for you. Yeah, Um, That's a good point. So where do you get some (laughs) of these ingredients? I mean, like the shea butter or the like the glycerin for the bubbles or, you know, yeah. So grocery stores have a lot of it. And you mentioned Whole Foods. Yeah. 
um, they have a lot of it. And then there's um, there are a few favorites of mine online. Um, one is from Nature with Love. That's who I write. Um, I write their blog, The Natural Beauty Workshop. So I'm a big supporter of them. Uh, Mountain Rose Herb is another big favorite. And um, locally here in Austin, we have a company called Better Shea Butter. And um, the lady who runs that, Isabella, I've worked with before, and her raw shea butter is awesome. She sells a few other staples, too. Oh, cool. So God bless the Internet. Yes. I mean, that's what I mean. (laughs) Going back to my initial question about sort of being a modern hippie, that's what's so cool about today is that you can go online and find recipes for just in a community of people who share, Mm -hmm. you know, different ideas with you or different ideals, which is a far contrast to when we were kids. And, you know, I think parenting is still can be an isolating experience. But the Internet has made it so that even if you're a crunchy granola parent. Right. Well, especially when you're a crunchy granola parent, you can find other people to answer questions about, right. you know, um, cloth diapers or right. anything that you want to do. So. Yeah, and all that stuff, since there's not, um, they're still kind of new mm-hmm. at this point in, mm-hmm. a lot, in a lot of ways. You know, like cloth diapering is easy, but there is a lot to know. Mm-hmm. There's troubleshooting along the way. Yes. I'd say that's the concept simple, but then there's all these troubleshooting things that you run into. Mm-hmm. So it's like being able to go to someplace like, oh, what was it called? Um it's in my book in the back of the resources. Um, Fluff Love University, I want to say. Oh, cool. And they have everything. Um, like, why are my diapers doing this? Oh. Why can't they get clean? Why do they smell? You know, <laughs> stuff. Practical questions. And they have answers yeah. to this stuff, which is so important because that's why a lot of people give up. Yeah. Because all of a sudden their kids are getting rashes or this or that. And they're like, what the heck? Like, I can't live like this. <laughs> well, so. you have a great uh, Facebook page called Mary Makes Good Thanks. where, the, you know, obviously that community is there sharing I mean, I keep going back to like the crafting ideas, but yeah. I just love the idea. I, I love handmade birthday gifts. We started yeah. making for my kids when they get invited to birthday parties. We'll actually go in and make a scrap pillow. So they will help piece together some fabrics to make just the front of a pillow and yeah. then I'll finish it. And we can knock it out in like an That's hour before cool. the party. But what are some other um, either groups or resources that you might point people to specifically in Austin, maybe for, you know, new parenting meetups or, you know, maybe mm. YouTubers that you really like? Let's see. Well, there's lots and lots of bloggers. My neighbor is my favorite mommy blogger in Austin. Oh, what's the name of that one? <laughs> Jack's mom in Austin. Cool. And she does she does lots of. I mean, she's like the. Sometimes I feel like a hermit when it comes. <laughs> <laughs> like, my baby didn't have any baby friends till he was at least I don't know eighteen months old, and I didn't have any mom friends because I just didn't know what to do. I was yeah. just and I was working. You know, I was yeah. working at home, and I was just like, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So um. My my sister was really great at getting together with other people. I want to think of some of the places that she goes. I was going to ask, would you do anything differently? I mean, you are getting ready to have another baby, but I second is way do, different than first. <laughs> one thing I'm going to do differently is I'm going to go out to those communities more mm-hmm. earlier. I'm going to go on more adventures earlier. I didn't realize, like, the gift that I had in, like, a child with no opinion mm. oh. <laughs> as a little baby. Amen. <laughs> people don't, I mean, when you I haven't taken him anywhere, as long as I gave him a boob. When you have a newborn, <laughs> I mean, this is why when I had a second baby, I actually knew that I was going to need something to do during maternity leave. Yeah. Um, and so I got some quilting tutorials oh, and, cool. and taught myself how to do, pat, you know, patchwork because yeah. they sleep a lot at the yeah. beginning. And yeah, they don't have an opinion. You can take them <laughs> wherever you're going to go. Well, all of a sudden they get older and they're sturdy and you feel confident, but then they don't want to do what you want to do. Or, and they can like, run away. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or they can, you know, just make your make the whole experience the way they want it to be, not how you want it to be. So you it's know, okay, oh, oh yeah, so yeah. much more freedom in a little baby than I realized at the time. Yeah. So this time I'm hoping that 
you know, well, what will really happen is that the baby will come out and, and be opposite of what the last one was. And I won't have any freedom, <laughs> but I have goals. We'll try. Uh, one of my friends got into Hike It Baby. It's like yes, a hiking mama yes. group. That was one of the ones I was trying to think of. Yeah, Hike so It Baby meet, is awesome. I think meetup.com is probably where you would find yes. kind of the, not just new parents, but like new parents mm-hmm. in hiking or new parents in whatever else you're interested in. Yeah, so. definitely. And um, Free Forest School Ooh. is another really cool one. Um, cool. That. It's, you know, totally free, like it says. Yeah. And um, they just meet up. Um, they'll meet up. They have different locations over the city. And you'll get there in the morning, and they have, like, shared snack. Everybody brings a, like, one kid brings bananas, and one kid brings graham crackers. And the kids kind of go around and have a potluck snack, which is really neat. Mm-hmm. And then they just wander into the woods. They read a story. And the kids are, like, free but supervised. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a nice um, a nice compromise between, like, Habibi Hutch. Well, I was just going to say, it's like, I mean, Habibi's is like oh, sort I've of heard, yeah. the, well, the well-known right. crunchiest of the hippie places yes. where the kids don't go inside all <laughs> yes, day. Like yes, they're yes. outside all day long. And they have mm-hmm. no programming or education. I mean, it is yeah. just free-range kids. Yeah. And it's like, you know, when when I was a kid, I was free all the time. Yeah. Um, and there are so many things that I look at him now and I'm like, I would never let him do that. But <laughs> you do want them to have like some sense of like freedom too. Yeah. So I don't know. It's It's nice to have those experiences where they're... Like, you're not going to let them drown, Mm -hmm. but they're free to go explore. Mm -hmm. And they don't feel like you're just watching over their shoulder the whole time. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I love about those kind of places. Yeah, it's like finding your own, figuring out whether or not you want to be a a helicopter parent. Right. (laughs) What level of helicoptering you want to (laughs) do. Well, it's like, you you know, you want to keep them alive. That's that's really important. (laughs) But you want to give them a sense of self and a sense of, you know, independence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my favorite parenting advice now is just giving kids the, uh, you know, parents' main goal is to give kids the opportunity to be resilient. Yeah. And sometimes that means having conversations that are tough or taking them to the grocery store when you don't really feel like it, but you know, I mean, I feel like that's an investment in, yeah. the, in the relationship is like spending time together and trying to, even if it's rough, yeah. like you're going to get to the other side of it. And yeah. this, is the, this is when you have an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old, it's a lot easier to like <laughs> be. For now, right? You're going to have to hit teenage oh. years, so <laughs> that's its own Life. adventure, I'm sure. Well, thanks Mary <laughs> Helen for coming in. Sorry. And um, good luck over this summer. It's going to be a big one for you. Thank you so much. Our music, comics, and movies expert, Joe Gross, recently had a book published about the important but almost completely misunderstood band Fugazi. Joe came in to talk to us about his contribution to the 33 and a third series of books about important music albums. Joe Gross, welcome to I Love You So Much. Thank you. You have a new book out from the 33 and a third book series. I do. A series we both thoroughly enjoy. It's about a Fugazi album, In on the Kill Taker. Yes, ma'am. So, okay, I thought the first thing we could do here is orient listeners in time. Sure. Um, there was Fugazi at the time, this record. Uh, th- well, let me just say there was Fugazi, but there was also Nirvana. There was Sonic Youth. Like, what were people hearing on the radio when In on the Kill Taker came out? What people were hearing on the radio was very different from the three bands that you that you mentioned. Um, here are some songs that were huge uh, in June of 1993, about the time that this record came out. Uh, That's the Way Love Goes by Janet Jackson. Mm. Oh, in the Boots that's a jam. by yeah. H-Town. Another uh, jam. Show Me Love by Robin S., <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that a, yeah. Is that a Robin. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 she now goes by Robin. 
She has spiky blonde hair or like pixie cut blonde hair. Anyway, continue. Uh, Dre Day uh, by Dr. Dre, the first, I think, it, yeah, that was the first single from the Cron. No. Nothing but a G thing, I think. It was. No, it was, a, it was it was a single from, it, I'm sorry, it was the it was a single, but it was like track two. On, so, so we have very poppy pop and then some emerging yeah. pop, yeah. but not a lot of two, punk. Two Princes by the Spin Doctors, not <laughs> punk. Um, no, it's it, it was uh, Informer by Snow that was on here. <laughs> oh it's a yeah, great song. Um, <laughs> but no, the alternative rock was exploding at this point, and there were lots of alternative rock songs that were increasingly big, and you know could be you know were big on that format, like Feed the Tree by Belly, I Feel You by Depeche Mode. Uh, Regret by New Order, uh, Pets by Porno for Pyros. Those were all sort of like big alt-rock format songs around the time that this record came but, out. But you write that Fugazi never really had that big commercial success. I mean, this album was was their their biggest commercial success, but even that was relative to like the Nirvanas and the Pearl Jam. Yeah, they weren't on a major label. And so they didn't have, uh, they were on their own, uh, they weren't on their own label. They were on, they were on a label owned by Ian MacKay and Jeff Nelson, Um who were both in the band Minor Threat and started Discord to document their scene and to document that band. And Discord just became more and more successful and viable. And um, Fugazi was an extremely popular band that I don't think anybody, when it started, expected to get as popular as it did. And so suddenly they were putting out records that sold 175,000 copies, 250,000 copies, which now would be like, you know, that's a number one record sales-wise, but was barely a blip um, in, uh, in 1993. Although with the advent of SoundScan in 91, yeah, 91, uh, the charts suddenly looked very different as, um, you know, every, it became clear that hip-hop and country music and underground rock were more viable than they had sort of been presented as. Uh, on charts. So this was their third album. They had put out some EPs and, and two albums. And then you yeah. write at the beginning of the book that even among fans of Fugazi, even among like casual fans, like this album was very misunderstood. Or actually Sheffield writes about Rob Sheffield writes into rights. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that's 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 true. I think um, I think it's 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 a little bit of a generational thing. Um, I think. This was a record that was highly, highly anticipated and came after they had a record that didn't, didn't, um, it was very popular, a record called Stay Died of Nothing. But it was the first record of theirs that got some kind of mixed reviews. And there's a chapter in the book about how they were really dissatisfied with how that record was made. And it was their first time producing themselves and they weren't real happy with how it turned out. And so they wanted a different approach for this record and ended up making a very different kind of record. And um, it was a, a, a huge relative relative hit. And they, they tried to start with Steve Albini, and that didn't work out. It didn't, it didn't work. They had um, – Albini was a friend of theirs and um, had offered uh, at some point, you know, if you want to come to my studio and just – crank out tape, um, you know, crank out demos or make an album, the studio time is free. And they were, had sort of hit a wall, Fugazi had sort of hit a wall creatively as to how to make this record and decided to go to Steve's 
for a weekend just to record two songs. And they were having such a good time that they ended up just like cranking through the whole record. They recorded like 11 songs in a weekend. And uh, Albini, uh, and I'm sorry, Ian Mackay, uh, one of the gentlemen in Fugazi, says in the book, you know, we thought this was, you know, I'm, I'm mixing it up in Steve's in Steve's studio and um, like, this is the greatest record ever. This is going to be, this is, you know, take that Sonic Youth or whoever. <laughs> um, this is, you know, this is, this record is, is, sounds incredible. And then they, you know, ran off two cassettes for the, um, the guys came in two cars and they drove back to Washington because that's what you do when you're young is, you know, you leave Chicago at 10 at night and are like, let's all drive all the way back to DC. And um, both both groups of guys listened to the tape in the car. And by the time they got to DC, they came to the same conclusion that it was like not good, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, borderline unreleasable and just needed, either needed some tweaks or needed to be re-recorded. They weren't sure yet. And ultimately they decided to re-record it. Can I ask you a personal question, Joe? Sure. So where were you at this time? How did you discover Fugazi? And was this a later in life uh, band for you? Or were you right there, teenage Joe Gross, like going for it? Uh, that that would be teenage Joe Gross. Um, I remember there are about 10 records in my life that I remember exactly where I was when I first heard them. Uh, the first Fugazi. Backstreet's back, all right. Back, yeah, I, <laughs> I, Definitely that. I, I do remember when somebody like mentioned, I do remember where I was when somebody mentioned the existence of the Spice Girls, and I was like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> of um, course you don't. Yeah. That's, I, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but anyway. Fugazi, I was at a friend's house. Her uh, boyfriend was a couple of years older, and he was the only guy in our high school who was super plugged in to the DC punk Discord scene. And he everyone needs a friend like that. Totally. And he had given her a copy of the first Fugazi EP. And we were all over at her house. A bunch of my friends were over at her house for dinner. And um, she, I think I was probably about 14 at the time. And she was like, I, I think you'll like this. I'll put this tape on. And I remember absolutely nothing else about the rest of the evening. All I remember is like staring at the stereo and being like, I have waited my entire life to hear this band. And so, yeah, I was a huge fan from the jump, um, from from that first record coming out. And you were in Virginia at the time, or is that college? Northern okay. Virginia, yeah. Okay, all right. So um, why did you, so that explains why you were drawn to this band, because they came at a critical moment for you. But why this album in particular? Is it because of what both Omar and Rob have said, which is that to fans it was a little bit mis- misunderstood? Well, um, it's... I, I'm 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 not sure if it was misunderstood. I it was, um, it was a co- it's a complicated record, and I think that peop the, the 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 mistakes that people made in sort of interpreting the record are the mistakes that people make interpreting like all of their records. In terms of why this one for the book, I emailed the band and essentially said, "I'd like to write a thirty-three and a third about you guys. I don't want to do it if you don't want to participate. So I want you to tell me." If you can sit down for interviews, uh, if you can't, then well, no harm, no foul, and we'll all move on. But if you can, um, I can write about basically any of your records. Uh, I have a list of three that I think would make the best books. Um, do you have any that you don't want to talk about or don't f- remember anything about or feel you could talk about better than others? And like to a man, all four of them were like, we can, you can pick whatever you want. 
Uh, we have the least pleasant memories of making steady diet of nothing. So just bear that in mind. Great. Fine. And so I decided to pick Kill Taker because it was not a comeback record, but this amazing, powerful album that arrived right as the idea of alternative rock was becoming this sort of ascendant thing and that Nirvana were huge. Um, and But, you know, Nirvana were huge, but like the sort of bubble grunge explosion of like the late 90s had not yet happened. So this was all music that was sort of on the ascent and stuff that was considered very underground that would draw like, you know, 200, 300 people a show was suddenly drawing like 3,000 people a show. And that's a very different, very different thing. The opening of the book, uh, you kind of set the scene of <clears throat> at the 1993 Fort Reno Summer Concert Series, uh, this um, incident where the band uh, is sort of uh, calling out some rowdy fans in the audience. And this kind of went viral in, at a moment where there was like pre-internet viral. Sort of, yeah, totally. Uh, can you talk about that? And also, like, how did you reconstruct that concert? Because you go into a lot of detail about what people were wearing, what what, what was happening. Like, were you actually there? Um, no, I wasn't. Uh uh, much to my absolute fury, I was out of town for both that show and their um, uh, 30th anniversary of the March on Washington show at the Sylvan Theater, which had been like a day or two earlier. And uh, that was massively infuriating because I really wanted to go to both and I just wasn't I just wasn't in town. Anyway, um, part of the reason that I got I was able to get so much detail is lots of my friends were there. And Fugazi, after they went on hiatus in 2002, about nine, I'm sorry, 2003, about eight years later, they launched something called the Fugazi Live Series, where they made available, started to make available recordings of every concert that they had a tape of. Wow. And they played about a thousand concerts during the course of being a band. And about 800 of them are available for download on this website. So I was able to – now, this show had circulated as a bootleg for years. And then when the concert series went up, it was one of the first ones that was made available because it was kind of a famous show. Does it have this exchange? Yes, it's the whole um, thing. Yeah, it's got the, entire, got the entire thing. And it's absolutely worth tracking down. I mean that show is amazing – uh, you know, musically and then for that incident, which is absolutely hilarious. Well, I mean, to me, it seems like kind of emblematic of them as a band, what you're trying to get across, because they had a reputation of policing violence at their shows, um, of like p- making sure that people didn't get too rowdy and calling them out if they did. But as a result, it kind of gave them this reputation as stuffy, like killjoys. Yeah. But the way he calls these people out is really funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. And I think that is ill ill deserved um uh, on the band's part. I think there were a couple things going on. The killjoy reputation. The killjoy reputation which, you know, they still have and I I don't think that's fair at all. Uh for a couple of reasons. One, uh Ian McKay has a very dry sense of humor which does not come across sometimes when you're on, I mean, it is bone dry, and uh, doesn't lend itself to the print medium always. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't lend itself to like telling people to stop. You know, he can be extremely funny about it. The other thing to remember is that they were operating almost always with as few bouncers as possible, like, or you know, they, preferably no bouncers. 
Um, and so they were in charge of the crowd safety. They were not going to delegate that to other people. Uh, yeah, why did they make that decision? Uh, because they wanted to be in. I mean, I think that's you know, um, you don't want somebody to get hurt on behalf of you. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like if a bouncer is is um, they did they didn't want to be part of that, and you know they. They're one of the one of, if not the greatest live rock band of the '90s, as far as I'm concerned. They are at least in the top five minimum, and um, so they would do these incredible dynamic shows. But they also wanted people to not run into each other and not participate in sort of this cliched ritual that they were yeah. seeing on MTV at this point. Right. Okay. Well, last question, Joe. Um, so. You know, I was interested in your book there. There's a long tradition in punk, post-punk, of social engagements, a polite way of saying societal rage. Um, But members of Fugazi were real activists. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. They were, um, you know, when they were in in Washington, they're banned from Washington, D.C. And they often, when they would play shows in town... Um, virtually every show they played in Washington after their first year or so of being in a band, six months or so, virtually every show was either free or a benefit for something. Um, the benefits were often organized by a group called Positive Force that you know just or- raised money for organizations via concerts and stuff like that. And you know they were well known. Vegans, they were well-known non-drinkers and uh, non-drug takers, and well-known for not granting interviews to publications that had ads for cigarettes and alcohol and stuff like that. Um, I think that tends to get a little foregrounded in coverage of them at the expense of what they were doing musically. What does Rob Sheffield say? Like a measure by which people could. Uh measure the straightness of their edges. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a funny line. It um yeah, it's a uh it it gets complicated um with them because they saw this as just part and parcel of how they wanted to um conduct themselves as a band, but not at necessarily at the expense of what they were doing musically. So yeah. it gets it gets tough. Well, you should check out Joe's book. Uh, it's part of the 33rd and 33rd, 33rd, 33rd series. Our friend, um, we should say our former Statesman Shots guest, Amy Gentry, has a book coming out on the Tori Amos album, Boys for Pele. Um, and it's just a really cool book series. It has a Jay Dilla book that I read several years ago about the Donuts album. So if you're into critical music theory, critical music history, then it's a really great Series, yeah, so. you can find Joe's book at on Amazon, where I bought it. You can find it at Book People. You can find it all over the place. It is in On the Kill Taker, part of the series. And this one's on Fugazi. Thanks, Joe, for joining us. Thank you. Thank I appreciate you. it.
With more than 122,000 followers on Instagram, Maura Ambrose has been featured in Martha Stewart, Vogue, and Garden Gun. But in this segment, she explains why her passion for quilting and dyeing fabric has never been about fame, money, or the social media following. The transition from being a student to a working artist was quite a few years. Um, A group of us graduated um, and moved to Philly, sort of, not intentionally, it wasn't a pack, but it ended up being, once we got there, we all hung out and shared a studio spot. It was like a really giant, old, dingy warehouse, Um, and we called our collective part-time studios, because we all all had part-time jobs and we're trying to do art on the side. From Philadelphia, we moved to Austin. My husband went to Austin Center for Design, and that's what brought us here. Is his He's an artist, too, and his um, interest in working with um, the interaction design, pairing it with humanitarian issues, was what brought us to Austin. And I continued working. I hadn't, like, given myself... I actually was saying at the time, I'm never going to own my own business. I don't want that responsibility. I wanted to just have the freedom and the liberty to, like, make what I wanted to make. And I didn't really know why I was making it. I just, it was an outlet. Um, And so I was working jobs that I was passionate about. And farming was one that I was, I, I farmed in Philadelphia. And then when we moved to Austin, I found myself at another farm. And... Um, organic farming, like, it was so inspiring because it taught me how to grow things from seed. And then it started coming back around. Like, I could feel myself remembering, like, my love for natural dyes and connecting it as in, like, I was feeling empowered that I had direct access to the, like, plant world now that I knew how to start things from seed. So that's, I feel like, really what brought me back was working with seeds and growing Mm -hmm. plants from seed. I didn't like a lot of quilts, and I didn't like a lot of the parts of quilting, like going to the quilt shops and like mm-hmm. picking out fabrics new off the shelf. Um, didn't inspire me even from the beginning. So I never really, I so I waited until I was able to like control the whole po- process. <laughs> Maybe there might be some control stuff there, but um, I think it also just mo- felt more authentic. To authentic. You. It yeah. felt like connecting. Like I, yeah, I have a. A need to connect and there's a sentimentality there too like um yeah a poetic feeling of having the story from the from seed to plant and I mean yeah my next and my next dream is to like grow the cotton for the batting and make the batting it's just or and maybe grow the flax to make the you know, the linen fabric. So That would be so cool. So at what point did you leave? You left Austin to buy a farm in Bastrop, right? Right. Well, yeah, There's it was some just property. Property. It's 10 acres. Um, we are surrounded by farmland, um, so it feels like a farm. Um, it's just wood. We're on wooded property, and we have a pretty, um, like, extensive kitchen garden. Mm-hmm. And so I have taken over the raised beds. It's half food and half dye. So. And so what kinds of plants are you growing for the dye? So matter root is one that we started about four or five years ago, which is a beautiful red dye from the roots of the bush. Um, and indigo is one that I've grew before and now I, I've come back to it because I've found myself, um, I found a variety that can be a perennial in Texas. So I'm, because 
there after farming for a few years, you kind of like realize that perennials are a little bit. The Those are your friends. They're yeah, annuals take more work. Um, and annuals, FYI, you have to plant every year. Yeah, or, or twice a year. <laughs> um, and and pull out and start over from seed, and then you know it's a it's quite a it keeps you on your toes. Where perennials just live in the ground and and live and come back each year um, and grow stronger and bigger and. And so, yeah, so, along with all the metaphors right. that come with that. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I found um, this indigo sofruticosa. Sofrutica, yeah, indigo sofruticosa is this variety that I discovered um, on Asaba Island um, near Savannah, Georgia, when I was visiting. Um, and they have, it, it's naturalized on the island there. It was um, a plantation that grew indigo for the industry back in the 1800s and so there's historic tours that go, and we I went um, with a group that was studying indigo, and um, so I just collected some seeds sort of casually and started them in my greenhouse, and now their seedlings are in our are in the ground here in our yard, and it's pretty. I mean, it feels like they're my babies, and it feels a little magical that it worked, but um, yeah, I I know I don't trust yet that they won't freeze in the winter <laughs> so i'm gonna baby them as if they are precious they are they are precious um what's, in, what's interesting to me is that you're doing you know all these new things that feel so exciting and fresh but they're all old things yeah too. Very old. and that i mean that you are you guys have a young family right. and but yet you really seem to be compelled to sort of maybe honor the past how would you explain your relationship with sort of the homesteading life and just you know, buying buying the least amount of things as possible and making as much as you can. Right. Uh, peaceful. It's a, I, if we get off balance and sort of slip into the other side of that, I don't feel as good at pe- or at pe- as much peace in my heart. Um, when we're, when we have a lot of time at home and we're cooking food and spending more time of our day preparing food and cooking food and being together and making things, it, it just we're all centered from it we mm-hmm. we all feel pretty good about it and having a kid really reflects that because you can tell by the the mood of the whole family is connected and and gelling it's um so it's just i i'm really sensitive i guess so yeah. i can i'm my intuition guides me and that's mm-hmm. what has brought me to the old ways is it feels the best um and could you have done that in Austin or do you think you needed to be outside of the city um I considered it um we would have needed a deep lot at least an acre or so but it would have that dream I think would have been more of a community driven outreach Mm -hmm. sort of a way to educate the neighbors around us and bring them into what growing dye and making quilts would be um and for moving out in the what it's a very private setting pastoral it's more of this time for ourselves right now to to generate the thought and think about what we're doing a lot and meditating on it so then it will be an outreach i want to i want to i wanted to i want to educate people and inspire people because that people naturally have come to me inspired. So I know that I have something to offer and share with the knowledge I'm learning and um, the lifestyle we've chosen to live. Um, but it's given us more time to like, 
percolate on what that is instead of just starting it from open doors. Um, Well, and you, you know, you've really built your career up to a place where you don't have a problem selling quilts. You can sell quilts all day long, but that's not necessarily what you want to do. (laughs) Like now I have a problem finding the time to make them. Yeah. Well, and that's where to transition into (laughs) what you guys are up to this summer. So Mara hosts workshops, you know, she has for many years. They're I don't want to say exclusive, but like definitely it's it's a small feel, hands-on. But I think the demand for those just grew so much that you guys have come up with a different strategy to for sharing that education. Right. So, right. The, we, we figured out um, that um, workshops, they're so – I get so much out of them. So teaching them in person, it's an experience that I feel like I'm learning just as much as the people who come to me are learning because we're all reflecting back to each other in a group setting, like how – like just the human interaction of introducing a creative a creative technique for for people. And so this is not just dying dying in quilting or mostly dying. So I usually it's usually uh, workshops are either either or a mm-hmm. dying workshop or a quilting workshop. Mm-hmm. But on the retreat style workshops that I'm starting to travel and do, we're combining them. So there'll be dye days and quilt days. So that's a new thing to put them together. So you've got retreat travel workshops. <laughs> right. But this video series will launch right. later this summer. Right. So what we were finding is the demand for workshops was high and we we were keeping the workshops small. So um, we weren't able to meet the demand. And um, we were proposed with a book um, and we thought that would be the way to go, to collect this information and put it out there. Um, but we, the, book, the book didn't feel right for us. The timing wasn't right um, because I, was so, I had so many ideas I wanted to get out. And um, actually publishing a book is uh, sticking with these few ideas and spending two years on them. Mm-hmm. I was just, I wanted to keep going making mm-hmm. quilt. <laughs> My last question for you is, you know, you were in Martha Stewart, you've been on national TV. What has been the biggest pinch me? I can't believe this is my life moment. Um, well, crossing a hundred thousand followers on Instagram. No, no, I never cared about that. Um, I, becoming um, a mom. I mean, there's I, been a few shaking <laughs> Martha Stewart's hand. Um, meeting her team, um, was really exciting. But we found out we were pregnant a week later, so it was, like, even more exciting. It's like, well, um, becoming a mom was pretty awesome. Um, making friends with I, – I, some of the – it's still sort of – I still pinch myself because clients of mine that have been interested in the quilts and follow my work are just equally as inspiring and exciting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just – so, I mean, that's, that's what I found through doing this is – the reason to do it and the reason I love doing it is because it my work connects me with people who inspire me. And so it's not about the money, it turns out, at all. It's about, like, being inspired and living a good life and um, getting, be, you know, connecting with the people who inspire you. Mm. Well, thank you so much for all that you do to keep me personally oh, inspired. Thanks. And I know our listeners are also fans. So, and, uh, you know, you're juggling a lot. So thanks for coming into the studio today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Addie.
We've now come to the moment in our show where it's time for a toast. This is where we go around the table giving you, our listeners, suggestions for things we think you should check out. So, Addie, how about you start us off? So, I just got back from Mexico City this weekend. I took my kids for sort of an end-of-year Spanish immersion celebration. You're so good about that. Ole. I know, ole. Hmm. I, um, for Christmas, I like literally wrote a note and I was like, boys, you're getting passports for Christmas. I hope you're excited. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Where are we going? Where are we going? I know. I try not to force them to do the things I want to do. And they they were really excited about going on this trip. And we ended up having a great time. But the real highlight was uh, staying with this sweet family through Airbnb. And this is probably the 10th or 12th time I've I've done it. I've stayed with an Airbnb person. I mean, sometimes I'll rent out an entire, you know, like apartment, like my mom and I went to Washington, D.C. and we did that. But for the most part, I like to rent rooms from families, especially when I'm traveling internationally. So when my sister and I went to Sweden and Denmark a couple of years ago, we stayed in four different Airbnb house situations, only one of them where the hosts were not present. But each time we stay with a family or with a person, like in Sweden, it was with this grandma figure who literally like made me breakfast the first day I was there and then caught me up on the Swedish monarch because I really wow. wanted to learn about the, the, the like wow. drama with the princes and the princes, prince and princesses in Sweden. And so this time we stayed with this family. They had a little girl who was about the age of my youngest. And so by the last day we were there, uh, our families were going to the park together oh, and like going to, the, I love that. going to the library and I taught them how to play Scrabble because they'd never played Scrabble before <laughs> <laughs> and it just really added a a level of, of just cultural exchange that I knew that I would want for the kids. I mean, it also meant that we were choosing to hang out with them rather than doing some of the touristy things we might have done. But um, I mean, now we're like texting on WhatsApp and like like the host mom and I were having like some real moments of bonding. And I feel like I've got friends Aww. in all these cities, you know, and I know it's kind of superficial because there is like a, co- a commercial exchange, like, but it's also really affordable. I, we couldn't we couldn't have gone and paid a hundred dollars a night. No, I love hotel. this idea. Yeah. I it's never occurred to me to stay with a family and like, but a not only is it more affordable, but you get this relationship while you're and traveling. You can like cook in their kitchen, and they can give you advice on where to go. And I love you know, this. I mean, we were definitely like up in their business. I don't know that I could host in that way and like have somebody in my house for three or four days. That would probably drive me crazy. But it's an added source of income for them, and for us, it was an added source of enjoyment. So that's my recommendation. Oh, that's cool. Well, I'm going to go next because my toast is also hospitality oriented. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um. The Line Hotel is coming to Austin. Now, this is a hotel originally out of Los Angeles. And it's also in D.C. And it's just this very, like, bespoke um, hotel. I don't even want to call it a chain, just family of hotels. And they put a lot of care into the design. And so if you've been <laughs> to the old Radisson on Cesar Chavez and Congress, they are gutting it currently. And because of this uh, gig I'm involved in right now, I'm getting to see kind of how they're designing it in real time. Wait, so the Radisson is going to be the line? Yeah, it's already it's already yeah. being oh. changed. Like everything, the side that faces the statesman, like we have a bird's eye view. Yeah. of this, is like all white now. Like repainted. Right, it's oh. already they, transforming. Interesting. Yeah, they scraped off the Radisson letters, they like sh- the cool Radisson they, letters. They just renovated that place like two or three years ago. <laughs> I know, but it's like. You know, um, it's this kind of like Liz Lambert instinct for hospitality now that instead of, you know, there are, of course, there's always going to be big national hotel chains, but people are getting really interested in these smaller, more personalized, like beautifully designed um, 
places. And so, yeah, so the Line Hotel, um, it's still, by the time you hear this, listeners, it will still be mid-renovation. Um, but it's going to be gorgeous. And I bet I would put money on they will have a bar or hangout areas that are available to just us tonight's too, not only guests. I was going to ask if you guys have ever done like a staycation downtown at one of the nice hotels. Yeah, but like the Hilton and stuff. Yeah. And, and I have friends that have stayed at, that have told me great things about like the Van Zandt and the, the Fairmont, even like some of these newer hotels are really stepping it up with the design and the you know, in the rooms. I've, I've, <laughs> I know what you're going to say. <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll withhold judgment. Um, but what I was going to say was St. Cecilia. I've always wanted to do a staycation at St. Cecilia or really any of the bunkhouse properties. Mm-hmm. Um, the Marfa one would also be extremely I mean, cool. The JW, JW Marriott, just to go up that high. And oh, yeah. The be Marriott's really beautiful. Fun, so. Yeah. So anyway, the Line Hotel, it's coming to Austin, and I'm really looking forward to it. So, welcome. Omar, what you got? Well, to give you a little preview of something we've got coming up, we, we're going to be interviewing uh, the folks at Home Slice pretty soon, hopefully, in the next couple episodes. But I, so I'm, as a preview of that, I actually went to Home Slice uh, on Sunday. I had uh, a Latino comedy project show, and I was between like run through and show and looking for a place to eat. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to go to Home Slice. That, that, I know that's good. So, what I did was I ordered the cold. Italian sub sandwich. A contrarian is, choice. Which is not what you typically do when you mm-hmm. go to Home Slice. And, and I have a story behind this. A couple a couple months ago when I was doing a cop shift uh, on a weekend, I went to Home Slice and I wanted pizza. I'm just give me pizza, please. And I go sit by myself at the bar and they're like, sorry, sir, we have no slices of pizza. I'm like, what? This is Home Slice. How dare you? Uh, and they're like, unless you want to go stand next door like a loser and, you know, whatever. Uh, so they were like, why don't you order the, the, the Italian sandwich? It's fantastic. I'm like, Okay. Come on, man. Mm-hmm. I want a pizza. So I ordered the sub sandwich, and it was like one of the best sandwiches I've ever had in my whole life. It they was bake so their own good. bread they bake daily. Their own bread. They keep the the bread is toasty but cold, but like it keeps the bread is is still bready, and the insides are still moist and and you know oily and Italiany, and it's 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 spicy. It's so good. So what I did was I using my head. I'm doing a little thinking, <laughs> Jeff, over here. Uh, this time I ordered the sandwich and a slice of pizza. <laughs> wow. Baller, and, baller and, move. And then. And then I took half the sandwich home and ate it the next day. Dude, uh, I just you were advanced planning AF. Yeah, I, I was u- using my head here. But it, yeah, if you've never tried a sandwich at Home Slice because you always go for the pizza, like, just trust me on this. Try the cold Italian sub sandwich. The waiters mm. will look at you with newfound respect. They'll look at you like, yeah, that's a baller move, eh? <laughs> well, Addie and I will be the judge of that when we do our Home Slice So segment. do you think you could, like, call it in and then pick it up to go? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay, because I'm hungry. I mean, it's made fr- it's made fresh, but yeah, it, it'll keep. I mean, it's got mayo and stuff on it, but I mean, so you don't want to like leave it out. But yeah, yeah, just put it in the, stick it in the fridge for the next day. It's fantastic. Thanks. Cool. Well, thank you for that toasty toast. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> it's super toasty. <laughs> That's our show. She's Addie. He's Omar. I'm Tali. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It helps other people discover the show. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from features editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. 
You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do this show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your graduation gift thank you notes. Until next week, we'll see you under the patio, misters. Mm-hmm.